Welcome to the Brazil Church of the Nazarene. This is the sermon from November 11, 2018, titled Christ Example and Humiliation. Let's listen as Pastor Marlon Betts talks about Paul's challenge to Christians to adopt the mindset of Christ. Turning in Philippians chapter 2, as we continue our study through this wonderful book, Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, as we stand together, honor the reading of the Word. If you've been around the church as long as I have, which most of you have, (laughs) you probably have this one down. Maybe in the King James Version, but you've got it down. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of the bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven, those in the earth, those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So if every tongue's going to confess that one of these days, maybe we should practice. Can we say Jesus Christ is Lord? Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you today, Lord, opportunity to preach about Jesus, the opportunity to share with our brothers and sisters in Christ and to the world, Jesus Christ. Pray, Lord, that you will help us to declare Jesus is Lord by the way we live, the way we die, and where we go for eternity. And we just thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe seated. This passage is considered the best liked and, and used, one of the best liked and used in the, in the New Testament. There's some discussion on whether it was a, a hymn of the church that Paul had grabbed and used and adapted here. I don't know if that's true or not, but it certainly is the language of Paul who uses very specific words for very specific things. It's one of the most discussed and debated passages in the Bible. This passage was used with other scriptures to form our Christology, the doctrine of Christ. What do we believe about Jesus? It's one of those passages that was mainly used to to work on that doctrine. I have read a lot of material this week and even looked at a lot of Greek words. And I cannot go into all the details this morning, but want to present the gist of Paul's teaching. And it'll take us a couple of Sundays to get through this passage. But as we saw last week, Paul wanted the Philippian Christians to improve in the areas of unity and humility. And he uses this passage about Christ and these specific words that he chooses to impress on them. The example of Jesus. Unity with God. Humility as a man. He started by stating that the pattern for all Christians to follow is Jesus Christ. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Verse 5. The word mind took his readers back to verse 2, where we talked about for a couple of weeks. 
And he said, fulfill my joy in being like-minded, having the same love, having being of one accord and one mind, using the same word. He wanted them to unify in one mind. And he's saying, how do we do that? We get the mind of Christ. If everybody has the mind of Christ, we're all going to have the same mind, right? Well, of course, there's the rub. There's the hard part, is getting every Christian to get in link with the mind of Christ, right? How do you do that? Read your Bible, pray every day. And listen and obey. Trust and obey. Sing that Wednesday night. That's a good song. So get that mind. If they were to be unified, the Philippians all had to pattern their life like that of Christ. If they were to have humility, then they needed to accept the mindset of Christ. Now this passage is like a huge V. It's just a big V. (laughs) And uh, you start at the top and it shows how Jesus begins at the top and, and was then humiliated down to the bottom of the V, and then it shows how he was exalted back up to the top again. And this week we're going to examine Christ's humiliation, and next week his exaltation. Oh, he went back up the other side of the V. So we're looking at the downward uh, movement this week. And Paul taught Christ's humiliation in three sections, three verses. And uh, the verses weren't there when he taught it, but anyway... They're easier for us to, to grab it that way. So the first one is Christ's pre-existence as God. That this mind being you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. His pre-existence as God. And to understand how much Jesus was humiliated, we have to understand the exalted position that he had with God up there in heaven, the top of the V. Being in the form of God is the first phrase, and form is a literal Greek word. I know some of them translate it nature, but it is literally form. It simply means that Christ was and is in essential form everything that qualifies God as God. He was just as much God as God is God. He is God. And don't get confused by that. We have a hard time understanding it because we try to make Jesus and God humans and act like we act and fit into our forms. No, God is above that. He's a trinity, a triunity. He is God, but he represented himself to us three different personalities and ways and persons. And so we have God as God, Jesus as God, Holy Spirit as God, all three equal God. And they're all one. All right. Jesus is part of the Trinity with all the power and knowledge and ability of the Godhead. Just for a period of time, he just happened to leave heaven and became a man, but he was still God. The next phrase was that Jesus did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Robbery is not the best translation for today. It was a good translation back when it was first translated into English. It's a proper translation of the Greek. The Greek has different words there, one of which is robbery. (laughs) Uh, Another word is to grasp or to take, which is where the robbery came from. Robbery is taking something, grabbing it, and uh, and taking it when when you probably shouldn't. And so they, they use that word, and it is a good translation of Greek. 
However, if three humans, this is kind of the way I try to understand it, had formed a committee and were unequal in all areas, well, we're going to start a company, we're going to do whatever it is the three humans wanted to do together. And then they said, okay, the two of us are going to stay back here and we're going to send one to do all the dirty work. Right? That person would probably grab onto the equality of the group and and say, wait a minute, why me? We're all equal here. Why don't one of you do it? Or let's take turns doing the dirty work on the bad stuff. It's not fair that I'm the only one who's going to suffer, die on a cross, while you two sit up here in heaven or whatever else you're going to be doing. Obviously, Jesus didn't have that kind of attitude. He could have. We would have. But he did not because he's God. And remember, Paul wrote this letter to a Roman colony. To their world, Roman emperors claimed divine status. And these emperors had no problem exploiting their position to increase their honor, to to increase their lands, to increase their uh, divine status, (laughs) and to get more and more attention. So the contrast of Christ, who actually was deity, unlike the Roman emperors, who would uh, surrender his glory, his position, for the sake of humans, that contrast would have spoken very strongly to the Philippian Christians. They would have said, oh, that ain't the way it is with any other divine leader that we've ever heard of. No, they're all about themselves. Christ is not about himself. He's about doing God's will. Now, there's too many illustrations in life of people who take advantage of their position, of people who refuse to get their hands dirty, to get down there, to have the mop bucket attitude. I've talked about that before. Mop bucket attitude. People need an MBA. The... uh, The owner and starter of Wendy's, that was his motto. Everybody needs to start and have a mop bucket attitude. And if you were to go there, they said when he was alive, he would be one of those, although he's the CEO of all these stores, he'd be down there mopping. He didn't care. Ron Cathy. No, that's Chick-fil-A. It's not in here. Anyway. I just came to my mind, things get going, and there we go. Anyway, but there's a lot of people who won't get their hands dirty, right? They're too good to eat at McDonald's. They're too good to shop at Walmart. You've met them. They're too good to drive a Ford. They're too good to live in Brazil, right? Too good to live in Staunton. (laughs) <laughs> Reelsville. No, anyway. I mean, they're too good to live podunk holler and all this kind of stuff. They're, they're too good. I've met people who won't go to McDonald's. I've met people who won't shop in Walmart. And I've met people who won't drive whatever brand it is, but has to have fancy insignias on the front. Why do you want to pay for half a house and drive it around? I don't know. Anyway, I have a problem with that, as you know. But if these people wanted to help the needy, what would they do? 
They would sit in the safety of their office and write a check with their fancy ink pen and, and send it to somebody else who will go out there and take the money and cash it, and they'll get a picture taken in the paper of them standing there with this big fake check, and then they'll get all the credit and glory while somebody else takes the money and actually gets their hands dirty, right? Right? There's a lot of people like that. Now, Jesus should have been one of those people who just wrote a check and said, somebody else die, somebody else go through this, somebody else, the blood and sweat and tears part of it. And he could have easily have said, I'm not the one. But he didn't grasp onto that. Thank God. So Paul is making an important point. Christ did not take advantage of his equality by refusing to fulfill the mission. No, his attitude of humility began in heaven when he was at the top of the V. And Jesus agreed to take on the necessary dirty work of coming to a sinful world and then to be killed by sinners. Hey, the guy's name at Wendy's is Dave. Woo! Dave Thomas. Mop bucket attitude. And now I've lost my point. Christ did not take advantage of his situation. Dave, Kath, Dave Thomas did not take, take advantage of his situation. That's pretty cool. Jesus was the son of God, think of this, who agreed to become the son of man. He agreed to leave the spotless, holy, perfect realm of heaven. And I have no clue how perfect and spotless and awesome heaven must have been. And yet he became contaminated by a filthy, disgusting, rotting with sin world. And what's worse, to allow those unworthy, dirty people to spit on him, curse him, abuse him, and destroy him. And he knew it from the beginning. This was his mission. He didn't know how physically it would feel, but he knew what was going to happen. And yet he agreed anyway. The first thing we need to understand about Jesus is that he always existed in eternity as God. He pre-existed before man was created, yet he chose to follow the plan that he had designed for himself. He chose to become tainted by sin. He chose to touch our sinful filth, to become one of us, and to be killed by us. Just got to hit us with that. Maybe this works good as we're going into the Advent season pretty soon because we begin to think about what Jesus came for. God being born in a stable. Not in some fancy palace somewhere. So the question for our reflection is, if this is the kind of God that we are serving today, do we sometimes take advantage of our position as Christians by refusing to get our hands dirty and fulfilling the mission that God was willing to do and the commission that God called us to do?
Jesus did it. But we're good Christians. We don't get our hands dirty with sin. Or sinners. His preexistence as God. His incarnation as a man. Verse 7. The next sentence Paul wrote was, Jesus made himself of no reputation. The Greek is literally, he emptied himself. This is the kenosis. That's why they call this the kenosis passage. The Greek is kenosis, which means emptied himself. A lot of been written on this. A lot of discussion. Emptied himself. Got rid of his reputation as God. Emptied himself. Emptied himself is better. And it, and it should be taken figuratively. And it literally means Jesus, to me, I've read a lot of stuff. But to me, it means Jesus poured himself out of himself. He gave of himself and of himself and of himself and of himself. Until there was nothing left to give. He poured himself into the mission of saving the world from sin until he poured it all out on the cross. There was nothing left to give. He gave everything he had. He gave 200%. I say 200% because he's fully God, fully man. He gave it all on both aspects. Long days of ministry, sleepless nights of intercessory prayer. He put all his energy and skill into fulfilling the plan of salvation. He spent 33 and a half years under the shadow of the cross, never wavered from his task. He led the group as they headed towards Jerusalem. He was leading them. Knowing what was going to happen. Next phrase, he took the form of the slave. Our first sermon from the series was on Paul identifying himself as a slave. It said bond servant, same as it does here. But it literally means slave. We have a problem with understanding slave in our culture. So they try to make it servant or something else. And Paul identified himself as a slave of Christ. Jesus became a slave. And so Paul identified himself as a slave. In the example of Jesus, and uses it here for Christ. What does this mean? Well, we spent a whole sermon on this, what slaves meant. Slaves belonged to the master. They had no choice except to obey or else be flogged or killed. We even got into becoming a love slave, a bond slave. Where after your term of indentured uh, service was over that you'd back up to the doorpost and they'd stick an awl through your ear and you were there because you loved the master. That was in the Jewish law. Jewish law, you couldn't be a slave for life. You were a slave until you paid off the debt and then you, every seven years, were set free. But some people would choose to be a slave for life. Now Paul's Greek and Roman readers would understand there's a slave And their slaves in the Roman world would have had no rights. They would have had no status. They were the bottom of the bottom. For Christ to willingly take on the role of slave meant that he was willing to become a nobody. (laughs) 
Jesus didn't come as a ruler, a soldier, a Pharisee, or a landowner, or a merchant. No. He identified with the poorest of the poor and the lowest of the low. He went to the bottom. Now, obviously, Paul is drawing a shocking contrast here to verse 6. Before his incarnation, Jesus was in the form of God at the top of the V. After his incarnation, verse 7, he was in the form of a slave. Same word. God and slave as the opposite words. It's important to realize that Jesus did not lose the form of God when he took on the form of a slave. By his becoming a slave, humans actually began to understand who God was and how much God loved them. God became human way to the bottom. Who was it that washed the disciples' feet? Who was the slave in that situation? Who was it that went to the cross for our sins? Who was the slave in that situation? Who was the innocent dying for the guilty? So we learn who God was and how much he loved us because he was fully God in the form of God and yet in the form of a slave. And the two come together. It was in his obedience to the divine plan, the God side, that he had the humiliation on the cross, the slave side. The, the, the divine glory of God on the cross was put into display for all to see. We can understand more about God because Jesus came to be lower than you or I. He came to the lowest, to the poorest. He became that. Why? Because we are somewhere above that. And if Jesus could get that low, then we can have hope. The next two phrases, likeness of men and appearance as a man, emphasize in six, and 7 and 8, emphasize that Christ was God confined to a human body. Jesus became physically just like other humans. He was born physically. He matured and grew up physically. He lived in a very physical aspect. He ate like we did. He slept like we did. He did everything. So you think about it. If it's human and the body goes through that, he went through it. And he did it. He matured. And then he died physically with every feeling that that torturous death could bring. He felt it. Jesus became like us so that we can learn how to become like him. If he could do it, we can do it. Questions. Are we as Christians willing to take the slave's role doing whatever God our King asks of us? And are we willing to pour out our lives? For Jesus? 
like he was willing to pour out our, his life for us. Let this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus. How can we not see that we are to be like him? And if he poured himself, if he emptied himself into this thing called humanity so that they could be saved, how much less can we pour out ourselves? Can we pour out our lives completing the commission of reaching the lost for Jesus? Number three, Jesus' crucifixion as a criminal or slave. He pre-existed as God, he, his incarnation as a man, and now Christ's crucifixion as a criminal or slave. Verse 8, found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Jesus humbled himself. The final downward step of humility resulting in his death on the cross. We can only stand in awe as Jesus is praying in the garden, sweating drops of blood. Surrendering to God's will. Experiencing the exhaustion of playing himself out without any sleep all night in prayer. This was not play acting. This was reality. This was physically exhausting himself. Spiritually giving himself. This was reality. There was a, here's the thing. If, if humility and obedience and self-surrender are the supreme characteristics of Jesus' life, then these characteristics also must be part of my like-mindedness as a Christian. I need to be like him. I need to have the same mind he had. To surrender to God's will. Get my hands dirty. Paul wrote, Christ became obedient to the point of death. Paul is drawing this out for his readers. He's taken it step by step, and now he's slown it way down. Humbled himself to the point of death. And then he says, even the death of the cross. So it's death, yeah, but what kind? Cross. So he's, he's pulling this and drawing it out, step by downward step. Christ's obedience to God included. His obedience to God's purpose and plan and will included his physical death. Then the shocking climax. These words would shock the Philippian readers, even though they know the story. Even the death of the cross. 2,000 years later, we have no concept, no concept of the shock effect of these words. Today, even Hollywood celebrities and professional athletes and singers and whatever, the hoo-hoos of, of modern society, you'll see them with their little cross earrings and their crosses and their different things. 
And I keep wondering to myself, do they have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Or is all that is, is just the latest popular symbol that they want to put on? Not realizing, in many cases, that their sinful lives are a direct affront to the cross that they have stuck in their ear. That every day, they're stomping the blood of Jesus into the ground. And how much more we look at them and say, oh, that's them. But ladies and gentlemen, sometimes it's us. We have our cross of little symbols and our little things that we do. Do we live up to the mind of Christ? Even Christians have beautiful crosses on our church steeples. We have them on our walls. We wear them. It's impossible, though, for us to imagine that the cross was not a beautiful symbol but a revolting symbol of shame and horror. It wasn't a symbolic decoration. It wasn't a classic piece of jewelry. To Paul's Philippian readers, crucifixion was the ultimate symbol of Roman torture. The cross was a political tool that the Romans used to suppress conquered people throughout the Roman Empire. Why do you think they left him laying out there, standing? I told you a couple of years ago in, in the Lent season that when they got done crucifying the Roman people, after they took Jerusalem, they couldn't find any more pieces of wood to put people on. We'll show you what happens to people who rebel. They said, let this be upon us and our children. Well, yeah, it was. They laid out the whole Jerusalem city on crosses. This was a symbol, a political tool used to suppress the conquered people. No Roman citizen could be crucified. If you belong to Rome, you could not be crucified. It was reserved, crucifixion with the cross was reserved for the nobodies, like rebellious slaves or hardened criminals. That's why I chose Christ's crucifixion as a criminal or slave as this final point. Polite Romans would not even mention the word cross in their conversations. Cicero, the Roman writer, wrote that that Romans should not even think the word cross in their mind. That's how stinking low it was. You were too elite to even think about the cross because it was so far down. Even amongst the Jewish society, 
which was where Jesus was crucified. There was a curse associated with the cross. One of the Old Testament laws written under the guidance of the Lord, God, uh, through the handwriting of, of Moses, it was written in the Torah, the Pentateuch stated that anyone who hung from a tree was cursed by God. Cursed is anyone who hangs from a tree. Deuteronomy 21, 23. So to the Jewish people, it was a curse to be crucified. Why do you think they pushed so hard for Jesus to be crucified? Because they wanted there to be no doubt in anyone's mind what kind of a man he was. He was no good, the lowest of the low, the worst of the worst, a criminal of the criminals, a slave of the slaves. So that there would be no doubt that he was not God, not deity, and nobody would ever bow the knee to him. Nobody would ever pray to him again. Nobody would ever think of him again. He would be so shamed. His followers would be so ashamed. And this whole crucifixion sequence was purposely choreographed to combine excruciating torture with complete humiliation. The Romans had this down to a science. The victims were abused by the Roman soldiers. In Jesus' case, they beat him almost to death. Tore up his body. His flesh ripped off his body. Bleeding, sore, wasted, muscles torn apart. And then these victims were paraded through the streets to be publicly abused by anyone along the route. I mean, even the little urchins that ran the streets, this was nothing as bad as a crucified person walking by. I mean, he was free reign. We're better than that. They'd pick up a rotten egg or a stone or whatever they had, throw it at them, spit, cat call. Because even the lowest knew that there was somebody lower than them. And that's the guy who's going to be crucified. I know our depictions of Christ on the cross are pretty, pretty nice. But they don't show you the reality of the fact that he was crucified naked. Public humiliation went the full nine yards, folks. If you relieved yourself, it was in front of everybody. It was disgusting. It was revolting. It was the worst thing that you could go through. And it usually lasted for days. In Jesus' case, they hurried up the process because of the Sabbath day. But of course, he'd already died. Because he gave his life. They didn't take it. And then after that, usually the Bodies would be left hanging after they died for, for days and weeks. Rodents and birds and whatever had their turn. And what was left, not in the case of Jesus, thank God, but what was left was then taken down and pitched into an open pit. The final humiliation for the family was it didn't even get buried. 
didn't even get the decency to be buried or a marker put on their grave or a cave. So many slaves were crucified by the Romans that the cross became known as the slave's punishment. The Philippian readers would instantly have made the connection of Jesus taking the form of the slave and then Jesus saying, he died even the death of the cross. Slave's cross. Slave's punishment. Paul knew full well the shame associated with the cross. It was the part of the society of the whole Roman world. The curse of the cross, he said, made a stumbling block for Jews to accept Jesus as the Messiah. And for the Greeks, he said, the concept of worship a crucified criminal was to them foolishness. He spells it out pretty well. 1 Corinthians one twenty three, Galatians 3.13. For the Jews, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. It's a stumbling block to be able to say, well, we're going to come to Jesus, the one who died on the cross. What? No one dies on a cross who's divine. No one dies on the cross who's worth anything. No one dies on a cross. That's stupid. So you can imagine as a Christian trying to share your faith, and the first thing you talk about, I serve Jesus, the Christ, who died on the what? Who died on the cross for my sins. Stumbling block Jews, foolishness to the Greeks, ridiculous to the Romans who wouldn't even use the word. So today we can hardly imagine the embarrassment the early Christians had when they told the story of Jesus. Everybody follow along, look at the miracles, the good things he did, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he died on the cross. Forget you, forget that religion. There's no way I'm going to follow somebody who died on a cross. There ain't no way. They would shake their heads and walk away as Christians told the story. In fact, it would take the miracle of Christ's presence in changed Christian lives before some people would become curious enough to say, what, what, what made you different? Don't, don't go into that cross thing, but what makes you different? Jesus living in my heart. And who's Jesus? He's the guy who died on the cross. No, don't go there. But they saw the change in people's hearts and lives until they knew there had to be something special about that Jesus and something special about the cross until today the cross is the most elevated symbol we have in the world. And that's why they put it on their earrings and on there because it's popular. It's good. It's cool. It's great. It's elevated. And it wasn't then. So the accumulating effect of Paul's account of Jesus' descent from heaven to the cross was astounding for his readers to read. 
They knew the story from Jesus preaching to them, but here it was in print, and as they read it, even the death of the cross. They would know that that is their message, but it's the message that nobody else wanted to hear. Jesus was God. Jesus became physically human. Jesus poured himself out through his life until he was empty. And Jesus was the poorest of the poor. And he humbled himself and obeyed to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So we cannot forget that the point Paul is trying to make. Let this mind be in you was in Christ Jesus. The point Paul is trying to make is Jesus was and is the pattern that you and I are to follow. We have been saved and elevated to the top of the V. God lives within us. But how far down are we allowing ourselves to go to fulfill the mission of Christ? before he exalts us again in heaven. Philippians and us, we must be willing to take the downward path of dishonor, suffering, and surrender in order to fulfill God's will in in our ministry. The life of Christ declares to us that the way up begins by stepping down, step by step. The way of life Begins by death. You have to die to who you think you are, ladies and gentlemen. If you're going to live like Jesus. The way to give God praise We can do it in worship on Sunday morning, but the real way to bring praise and honor and glory to God is to do ministry for Jesus during the week. That's the real way. All of heaven rejoices when one man or woman comes to Jesus. They throw a party in heaven. You want to please God and give him glory? minister to others in the name of Jesus. So Jesus' downward plunge from heaven went far below what anyone could have ever imagined. Question, to what extremes are we willing to go to bring Jesus to our unsaved friends? I can't stir you up. I wish I could. What extremes are we willing to go to bring Jesus to our unsaved friends? And be honest in your answer. I mean, you answer that question to God. To what extreme am I willing to go to bring Jesus to my unsaved family and friends? We have to be honest in our answer because Jesus knows. To what extreme 
we have attempted to go. Paul challenged the Philippian Christians to adopt the mindset of Christ. In the middle of opposition and suffering that these Christians were going through, they were to stand firm and not give in to the crowds. They were to continue to preach the cross in Jesus. Their leader, Jesus, was obedient to God's plan, even though it meant his death on a cross. Jesus was willing to take the humiliating slaves route if it helped the body of Christ. Jesus was willing to take spit in his face if he could rescue one person from sin or hell. He was willing to do whatever it took. And we don't want to get our hands dirty. They spit in his face. The extreme, overwhelming, never-ending, relentless love of God. Challenges us to pray. And begin a conversation about what can I do as a Christian and what can we as a church do as Christians to reach out and do something to get our hands dirty and touch this world for Jesus. And we don't have to be embarrassed of the cross either. It's the most popular accepted symbol there is today. If they could do it in their day, with all the garbage that went on the cross, we should be able to do it today when the cross is a popular topic. Except most people do not really understand what it means. This relentless love of Christ challenges me. I need to pray. You need to pray. We need to have a conversation. How can we be Jesus to our world today? I'm hearing bits of conversation here and there. But I would like something that we can put into action. We need to find a way to get involved. Someone that you know needs Jesus. As much as I would love for them to come, you invite them to church, and that used to work, and sometimes it still does. That's the easiest way. But sometimes we have to go and get dirty. Family altar time. Praise team's coming. Let's sing a little bit. That makes us feel better. But in the middle of the singing, let's also be praying and thinking. Get some conversations going. And let's start right here, conversing with God. What do you want me to do? What is my ministry? What is my area? How can I get in there 
in the trenches with Jesus by my side? How can I help someone come to Christ? What can we do? To make a difference where we live today in our Philippi. Lord, as we bow before you, speak to us, Lord. Speak to us today. We've probably got the most comfortable seats in any church. We keep the heat up and the air conditioner on whenever we need. Good lighting. Lots of good friends. We worship you with the best that we have. But what are we doing when we leave the sanctuary? Are we going into the harvest field? How can we go? Teach us. Show us. Lead us to the lost. In Jesus' name. As we stand together, come and make your way forward. If you have a lost person that you know, why don't you pray for them? Bring them to Christ. Let's begin to seek Him, folks. Let's find a way. Find a way. King of my life, I crown thee Thine shall the glory be. Lest I forget thy thorn crown brow, lead me to Calvary. Lest I forget ourselves in your hands. We pray for your spirit to move in our hearts.
I've done what I can to preach the truth. It's up to your spirit. Quicken us, Lord. Help us to realize we've got to get the message to the world. Got to get the message to the world. There's too many dying, too many lost, too many hurting, too many hungry, too many effects of sin surrounding us. And we become used to it, Lord. But you're still weeping over Jerusalem. You're still crying over the lost. It still breaks your heart. Help us to have boldness. Help us, Lord, to move out of our comfort zone. Help us to have conversations. Help us to begin to find a way to become Christians that you want us to be. Thank you, Lord. We surrender to your will again. We surrender to the cross. We surrender to the mind of Christ. Thank you, Lord. Be in our worship. Be in our worship today. Be in our daily lives. Be with those having surgery this week. Those adjusting, Lord, to changes in their lives. The problems and the trials, the hurts. The physical issues, the mental. But Lord, help us to also find a spot for the spiritual. That's the most important. In Jesus' name we pray. We love you. Love you, Lord. We love you, Lord. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this sermon. If you're looking for a church in the Brazil, Indiana area, the Brazil Church of the Nazarene invites you to join us as we seek Him, celebrate Him, and serve Him. Each Sunday morning, we have Sunday school at 9 a.m. and a worship service at 10 a.m. During worship, we have We Worship for preschool-age kids and a children's service for elementary students. On Wednesday nights, we have a prayer service and activities for teens. For this information, news, a schedule of events, and much more, be sure to visit us online at brazilnaz.com. That's B-R-A-Z-I-L-N-A-Z.com. Thank you, and God bless.